Uh, we have sort of a problem here. My name is Edward Champion, and this is the Bat Segundo Show. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. It is estimated that 54 million Americans toil in an office. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that, I... I forgot. Mm. Office workers are regularly humiliated by their bosses. They are passed over for promotion. You gave that promotion to Bob Enright instead of me. I've got five years seniority over him. I know that. For Christ's sake, I trained him. I know that. Yet the Faustian bargain behind this social contract is often upheld by middle managers operating with a fairly delusional understanding of reality. People say I am the best boss. They go, God, we've never worked in a place like this before. You're hilarious. Perhaps they, too, are victims of a process that sucks out the best years of their lives. People see me, and they see the suit, and they go, you're not fooling anyone. They know I'm rock and roll through and through. But uh, you know that old thing, live fast, die young? Not my way. Live fast, sure, live too bloody fast sometimes. But uh, die young, die old. Whatever the case, the system is guaranteed to pit all office workers against each other in a battle royale without the body count. In much the same way that wild animals are carefully trained to perform tricks for the greatest show on earth. In the first place, see, Bob does have a college degree. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. While he's away at college getting his precious useless degree, I'm working my butt off at this company. And in the second place, he does have a family to support. And I don't. What has that got to do with anything? Look, my hands are tied here. The company needs a man in this position. How did it get like this? Is this the best America can offer? Was there ever an age in which the office provided reasonable security for the worker? Is it even possible for the office worker to be given respect and reasonable compensation in the 21st century? In an age of increasing open office plans, the erosion of privacy and declining jobs, why do so many of us settle for 9 to 5 perdition? I met up with Nikhil Savant, author of Cubed, to try and figure out what the hell happened. It turns out that misguided philosophy, austere architectural developments, and a carefully manufactured belief culture standing against the progress of organized labor are all part of a very complicated story, one that all of us take for granted. Okay, so I'm here with Nikhil Saval, who is most recently the author of Cubed. Nikhil, how are you doing? I'm okay. You're Good okay. Okay. Well, I hope I can make you more than okay. Or is that so too, too corporate and cubicle for you? <laughs> we, we are, in fact, talking in an office, so I'm not sure uh, what that does to this conversation, but we'll, I suppose, make amends. I know. Well, at least it's a private office and, okay. not, and not a cubicle. I guess that could be a... Oh, yeah. Be... Or an open office, for that matter. Or an open office, God. Uh, yeah. Well, let's get it right into it. Uh, back in the late 1970s, Jane Fonda met Karen Nussbaum, a remarkable figure who organized women clerical workers in this 9 to 5 movement. And Fonda and a screenwriter spent an entire evening talking with 40 office workers. This became the basis for the wildly popular movie 9 to 5, which arguably set the template comic-wise for Office Space, The Office, and of course, most recently, Silicon Valley. Um, As you point out in the book, some of the proposed remedies at the end of that film, plants, rearranged desks, flex time, daycare at work, they actually reflect what's known as the Burrowlandschaft ideal, and we'll get to that in a bit. But, you know, this has me wondering if there is something permanently broken 
about the office. Is it possible that any attempt to remedy it or improve it is almost this kind of neoliberal trap? What hopes do we have for the worker? Or is the deck permanently stacked against her? <laughs> just to start off here, some nice, nice yeah, it, was such, it, was such, it was such, it was such a wonderfully bleak book. I had to <laughs> have a vivaciously bleak opener. Gosh, uh, I, I wish I could just, I could just say no, no. It's much more. It's a, it's a. The story's happy. It has a happy ending. Um, you know, it's not. I, I don't really mean to say that the the workplace is is permanently broken. I guess I do want to say that the thing I, you know, the kind of repeated. As you pointed out, there's like a repeated attempt to make work better. Like there's sure. just you, and usually through design, but also through other kinds of arrangements in the workplace, architecturally, what have you. And a lot of these go wrong, and some of them go spectacularly wrong. The, the most famous being the office cubicle. And um, and you know, I think the 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 point of point there is not just that that the office seems to be broken, but that there is some sense of a an idea of how work might be better. And, and there, there is an, an idea of, of, of somehow you might be able to organize it better. Somehow work might be more free, more might be workers might have more control over their work, things like that. And, and usually these things are sort of fatally disabled by, um, I mean, it's not always the case, but usually roughly it's, it's a presumption that these designers or planners know what's best for an office worker. And there's usually something imposed on an office worker, or there's a plan that starts out really well. And then when it's replicated um, ad nauseum, it, it goes wrong, you know, or it, or it doesn't even strike at the heart of what's wrong with work. And, and like they try to design away things that are more fundamental to the issue of the workplace. But as, as you also point out in the book, there is this brief moment for the worker and perhaps it's an illusional one (laughs) or a delusional one where, uh, you have a situation where suddenly, uh, there is care about what the worker thinks and, how the worker can behave, as opposed to how the worker should behave, and I'll get into Mr. Taylor in a bit. But, but uh, I, you know, what what accounted for that particular moment, which was roughly around 1929 and and up through about the 1950s, before yet another ideologue came in and had ideas about what to do for the worker and for the workplace. Um, well, that yeah, that's so that's the human. I guess you can call it the human relations movement. That was the <laughs> the, the 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 idea that. That's the 1960s of the office. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's yeah. the hippie idealism, I suppose, right. around that period. Yeah, yeah. It, and, it, and it comes out of a lot of different sources. I mean, one was just the, I mean, it was, you know, because it wasn't actually, it was the office, but it was also just the workplace. The industri- the, it, it took hold on, on factory floors as well. And the idea was just that, you know, w- workers needed to be, in corporations that were that that somehow ostensibly cared for them, it came out of the what were known as the Hawthorne experiments, which were a, are sort of a famous social science experiment where they tried to, in a particular in the uh, Hawthorne, I think Electric Works is what yeah. it's called. They um, they tried to experiment with different lighting levels and to see you know what how this affected the way people worked, and what they realized is that actually there wasn't a direct connection. It wasn't that the light got better and workers worked better or it got worse and workers worked better. It was just that when the light, you know, when workers thought they were being watched, at least, at least this was the conclusion, they felt like the company cared about them and therefore they worked better. Yeah. And so, you know, especially at a time, uh, this was not so true in the twenties, but certainly in the thirties, this was true that, 
there was, you know, union movements. The, the, it was sort of one of the high points of the American labor movement. Uh, corporations, companies just felt that things were not going their way and they did not want unions in their workplaces. And so they thought, well, we just need to become more familial. We need to care more. We need to be manage more lightly. We need to think of our workers' psychology, not just their, you know, not just their efficiency or their productivity. And um, this, you know, I think this, this results in all kinds of changes in the workplace. I mean, I think uh, I, I sort of argue that even the architecture of the workplace at that point somehow reflects this desire to, to make work better, to make workers feel more at, at home. Um, maybe the mid-century corporation, I think I, I suggest that it's like things like the Lever House, yeah. Seagram Building, like the, just the, the, the attention to light, to, to, to design, the just, the, the just explosion of design at that time in the workplace. Um, even the idea that a workplace should be, the interior should be thoroughly planned and designed, I think reflects this attempt to make workers happy. Do you, do you think that many of the behavioral psychologists and these people who were looking into lighting were thinking very much about unions? I mean, we often forget from our uh, – well, to get into the decline of, the, uh, of labor in the 21st century is another can of worms. But we often forget from our vantage point now how much hold labor had in the early 20th century. And I'm wondering – uh, in the attempt to determine how workers were feeling, uh, I mean, how much how much was that a presence? How much was that a motivation, or or was it simply just innate curiosity or the kind of touchy feely vibe we were employing earlier? It's you know, it's it, certainly on with industrial workplaces. It was definitely, I mean, absolutely a fear. I mean, they, just partly because union organizing was so, it just spiked. You know, yeah. especially after the passage of the 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 Wagner Act the National Labor Relations Act uh, it um with the office I don't think there was a huge worry about it there there I I sort of did some uh to me very fascinating but ostensibly uh, probably to other people very tedious archival work where I looked into the proceedings of the International Association of Office Managers yeah, yeah. uh or rather I think it's the National Association and they you know they there's a point in the 30s when they're, they really express worries about this, and they think, well, it's really taken hold on factories, and even some offices are starting to unionize. And there, are, and there actually is, you know, a, a, a more than there used to be in like certain publishing houses. The New Republic <laughs> uh, organizes at the time uh, with a, with something affiliated with the Communist Party, and so you have people talking about how the last sort of redoubt of of capitalism, the the place where individualism thrives the office even this is under threat and so we really need to to make this is a real i mean once this goes there goes you know i think there's a there's a little bit of a sense that you know and it, and again it was not so widespread but they were definitely afraid i think well you do in fact quote the possibly apocryphal samuel gomper's line Show me two white-collar workers on a picket line and I'll organize the entire working class. I, why didn't office workers latch onto labor? You suggest that there is this assumption that their talents and their skills could, in fact, give them an independent shot. And, and I suppose, I guess we see the natural offshoot of this kind of libertarian impulse with some of the tech entrepreneurs that came later. But I'm wondering, you know, why couldn't there be some sort of confluence here? Because it seems to me that everybody here was, had the same interests in mind. Yeah, it's this is sort of the central contradiction of 
of the the white collar workplace. I mean, it's just that there is, um, there is at the one hand, on the one hand, you have this ideal of this perfect meritocracy. I, I, you know, that that certainly the managers talk about this in their association that you can rise from, you know, you if and this was true in the early antebellum offices, especially that, and it made more sense then that if you were a, a clerk you would become the partner of that firm. And that lasted even past the point that that was, that was true. Once offices became much larger, business became big business, and, and there were only so many places at the top and many more places at the bottom. So it was, it was just less and, and less likely. Toil long enough at the firm and you will ascend to heaven when you're dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a very familiar promise. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So the way that that persists is... You know, it's partly the, it's partly just a, there's just a lot of, I mean, it, it, it makes sense to the extent that it was true for some people and that, you know, that, that had some effect that made people think that it was true in the office. Um, There's something about the prestige and status of white collar work that, that has, that has made it different from blue collar work in, especially um, in the U.S. politically. Uh, it just seems like it's cleaner, you know, it's just your, your, it's, it's the, the work, the work often required a high command of English. So when there were a lot of, then when there are high waves of immigration to the United States, there weren't a lot of immigrants working in white collar workplaces. So there was a kind of homogeneity. Yeah. And then of course, also they, it was very male up to a point. And then when women entered the office, they often entered as the into the steno pool the typing pool and to jobs that didn't have high levels of prestige so that men could feel themselves above in a way could could still feel like they were middle class even when they maybe they maybe weren't so the and the other thing and i talk about this a little bit in a chapter about the skyscraper is that there were not a lot of appeals on the part of of unions or 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 political parties in in the u.s to white collar workers it was not clear how to organize them um and it was not clear how to get through to them yeah exactly the the whole the whole model was predicated on on industrial organizing and this is this doesn't mean that it didn't work in in a number of cases um and there's a whole can of worms which i don't deal with which is the public sector just because i think it's a different animal can of worms, animal. Anyway, we'll forget that. Let's the, mix as many metaphors yeah, yeah, you like. Yeah. Um, um, but, but I mean, but this leads me to wonder, you know, why couldn't these very dedicated labor unions get through to the white-collar worker? I mean, they had, and again, I cannot understate this, they had incredible power at the time. Right. How could they not actually have the communication skills or the fortitude or even the way, way, even the ability to massage their message, <laughs> right? To I mean, why why couldn't they get through? I mean, they they did try. There's there's a an AFL magazine article you quote uh, addressed to the white collar workers, where essentially uh, the the author says, "Hey, look after yourselves. You want to think about the future, uh, but but it seems to me they need to go further. I mean, what what was the what was the disconnect here?" It just, you know, it it's it just seems like a number of things. They one and one was just the persistence of the 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 idea that that upward mobility was a given, you know, and and I think, and you know, the the in in periods where there are, there are high levels of, it's mainly growth actually. I think in like the twenties, you know, they like even when inequality widens, uh, union influence starts to to dip after a kind of high point in the late 
19 teens. And then in the 30s, the union influence in the office increases because, you know, white collar unemployment becomes a, a real thing. And then it, there's, there's, um, but then it, then it dips again, you know, in the, in the fifties and then it, and then it, it's starts to spike up in the seventies. And then, and then actually in the eighties when things really actually go wrong for a little bit. And the Reagan and the air traffic controllers. Yeah. 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 You know, and then, and then it hasn't really, um, it hasn't really, you know, you would think that, and you would think now, uh, in the last, uh, four years that it would, it would increase, but, but it, it, and then, you know, again, there have been, I feel like I've, I've read of isolated cases, but it's not, it's not a trend. Um, and I think it's, you know, there, there's a union organizer who I quote from the, from, who write writing in Harper's in the fifties. He's an anonymous organizer and about why, why, why white collar organized workers can't be organized. And he seems to think that there's a way in which they, white collar workers see themselves, even though they, they are exploited. He says they're, they're the most exploited workers in a, in a certain way, but they, they, they see themselves as having possessing, uh, possessing certain skills. Whereas, um, a machine, you know, uh, an assembly line worker will, will say, we'll talk about the industry that he works yeah. in. I work, I work in, I work in, in the auto industry. Whereas a white collar worker will refer to his or her profession. I'm a stenographer. I'm a typist. I'm a, you know, I'm a bookkeeper. And that, that, that way of talking indicates that you're able, able to move, you know, that you have a skill that other people prize. And I don't know that that was, that's a sufficient reason for people not to, to organize, but it may, it sort of means that you, you know, you need to, you need to sort of talk about different things when you're talking to, to white. So, I mean, that, I don't know, you know, and, and it doesn't, it's not always the case. You can, you can kind of people, people, you know, it's people do organize. It has happened, but um, this was his reason anyway. Well, you know. In other words, with this particular notion, the suggestion uh-huh. is that one had a kind of linguistic independent identity. One had a label that they can hold as their own, whereas the organized worker would relate to an industry. Um, and I mean, this, this leads me to wonder why that notion of independence uh, was, number one, so appealing to the worker, and number two, why they didn't see, especially after toiling for many decades and not getting anywhere, that it was all a sham. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it remains a sort of intractable uh, question, but it, it, I think it is, I mean, the, the notion of independence is, is powerful. I mean, it just, you know, and, and uh, you even see that now in, in the rise of, of freelancing or contract work, which is not, I do not want to attribute that too much to people choosing to do that all the time. I mean, there is, there is a the, lot the of... The sexiness of having to go ahead and pay for your own health care, right? uh, <laughs> yeah, having to go ahead and look for pennies under the couch. It's just such a remarkably romantic it's, idea, it's isn't so it? It's so freeing. Yeah. It's liberating. But, um, it, but on the other hand, there are, there are people who choose to, to do it in, in certain... In, and and, uh, and this, what they're seeking is a certain kind of freedom and autonomy over, over their work. And I mean, this is the sort of thing I've heard from... I mean, there's an expert I spoke to who's researches this, Richard Greenwald, um, yeah. labor historian, who talks about this. But, but the basic point is that you, you know, office work has this weird way of of uh, seeming to offer, and in some in some cases, people feel that it delivers. You know, depending on what they're doing, um, a certain kind of mastery over your fate, even when when. You also know that that's not the case. That there are there are people above you. There is office politics. There is a certain kind of pettiness. You know that 
we we have both things operative and they there there's a dissonance there that is pretty hard to resolve i'm happy to continue rumbling with some of the labor issues here however i don't want to stray from the architecture and some of the philosophy um i mean when i read your book i saw it also very much as a labor book as well so i'm glad we're actually unpacking this but let's go into burlandschaft um (laughs) a guy by the name of robert probst He is the man responsible for Action Office, which I didn't know before I read your book. It's this series of orthogonal partitions introduced through the Herman Miller Company to create a better and ergonomic environment for office workers. It was predicated on this notion of Burrow-Landschaft and took quite a while to catch on. Then someone has the bright idea of closing these partitions, and voila, we have the cubicle. Maybe this would be an opportune time to unpack what Burrow-Landschaft why it took so long to catch on in America. And and, and also, I, I want to ask, do we have any real idea who the first guy to actually close the partition is? Because that seems to be the guy we got to go ahead and say, hey, buddy, you're the guy who's responsible <laughs> for all this. I mean, can that guy or that particular innovator, I, I use the term in quotes, even be tracked down? <laughs> I mean, we could put him, what would be the opposite of putting him on a postage stamp? Just, the, the, you know, just <laughs> or, for derision. Or shame him on Reddit, I guess, or <laughs> send 4chan after him. But but anyway, I mean, but seriously, I mean, you know, I mean, it took such a long time for Action Office to catch on. And then it did, and then, and it was it was absolutely perverted from its original ideals. And and poor Probst is is uh, kind of responsible. We got to pin a little bit on him too. Yeah, poor Probst. I do I do sort of I, I mean I I sort of treat him as a sort of tragic figure in a way. <laughs> I mean there's, because he definitely didn't intend this, even though he might have. It might even at the time people knew that something was off. Uh, and and so I mean yeah I mean so. Where should we start with Burrowlandschaft? Yeah, absolutely. The, yeah, so uh, the uh, Burrowlandschaft, uh, the Burrowlandschaft, yeah. The, uh, if we want to go hard German, yeah, <laughs> as the, opposed to anglicized German. Uh, it's the um, is you know the translation is the uh, is office landscape, yes. uh, which has a little bit more of a natural connotation than than it than it actually had in practice. Although it did, there were plants or and you know greenery were an important part of it. Basically, it, imagine an, an overhead. There's one terrifying overview map where if you're looking at a park, imagine it all composed of desks and tables <laughs> and plants, all sort of, you know, arranged almost like trees. And yeah. it doesn't quite work. Uh, it's, 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 well, it looks t- tremendously chaotic, but yeah. it was based, you know, it came out of Germany in the 1950s. And Germany in the 1950s was this, this I mean, it was a, in a way a kind of terrifying cleared landscape in, in many – or space in many ways because it had for 20 years they had been preserved from yeah. outside ideas from and uh and what happened is that all of them came in in a rush in the 1950s and there was just like it was a heady time including taylorism a certain you know t- taylorism now processed through human relations and 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 we'll um, get to taylorism in a bit oh yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a lot to unpack um and uh and so the these these uh uh People work. They were called the Schneller brothers. They um, had it based in Hamburg. They started to think about to try and apply these ideas to the workplace, and they conceived of this what is really the origins of the modern open plan. And it, the idea was that you would have a workplace that was not based on status or prestige. It wasn't that you were the CEO of the company, so you got the corner office. That just would that would be that would end. And every, it would all just be based on paper flow and these sort of theories. I, there was a sort of cybernetic theory of how communication works in a, a good old Norbert system. Wiener, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And um, 
and these and this is this is this and so they conceived of the open office plan and, and one of the first was in 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 uh was designed for the published for the company Bertelsmann who owns the uh, publishing house where we are <laughs> right now we're, right. we can't escape it yeah we so um anyway they it was a it was like a huge success among architects and designers when they first saw it because the offices they knew were these you know the offices we know from the apartment or yeah. now mad men the Row after row of desks. Or the crowd, if we want to go older, King Vidura. Or playtime, as you point out, Jacques Tati's absolutely prescient vision of cubicles and that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Brilliant film in so many ways. And um, so, you know, it was a a success. It traveled through England. It took off in Europe for a little while uh, and then made its way to America. And actually one of the earliest proponents that just just, uh, admirers of the space was Robert Probst, uh, then working for the Herman Miller Company. And he saw this. This he saw in a way the template for the, the furniture he was designing. An action office. You know, there were two tries at it. One was a very beautiful uh, sort of loose configuration of desks, including a standing desk. Which well, a lot the of, original title of Action Office One, followed by Action Office Two. They were point. very creative in their titles. Yes. Yeah. 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 And the, but the, the the emphasis on action, right? You have like <laughs> if you look at the images, there it's just workers are sort of blurred because they're yeah. moving too quickly. They're and blurred they're... because they want to keep them out of focus because they're not really doing anything. <laughs> there is no action to this. I was looking at these photos. Where is the action? Even if like they had some guy running around with a baseball bat, I would have been totally on board for action <laughs> office. But yeah, it's 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 funny how I mean Probe sort of I mean in this came out of his own work experience. He just was like I'm I should be sitting at, at, like for a few minutes and standing and walking around and having a meeting and your just workday should be punctuated by constant activity, and um, it was it was a great conspiracy to allow white collar workers to expend more calories. <laughs> that's that's you right. Know, all that standing up and sitting down, as opposed to just concentrating on a task while sitting down. You know, it's, you got to do something. Yeah, it's the, it was a progenitor of like he- healthy activities in the workplace. But yeah, but but, it, but, it, but this was appealing for some reason. I, I <laughs> well, the first version. I mean, it, the the it, you know, in a way, it was it was uh, it prefigures a lot of. Uh, I guess you could say progressive ideas about how how people should work. Um, I feel we should stand and sit up as we're talking about this. <laughs> yeah, we should actually. Yeah, we're yeah. sitting right now. Where <laughs> yeah. It's not good for us. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, but then it was too. The first version was too expensive, and um, and it was just it, this. You know, this should have been a sign that that the fact that workplace is confronted with something that was pretty cool. You know, in the, in its way. Um, and, would, and, and also pretty paradigm changing as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like it was no longer. It was like, oh, we need to. It's like, it, the idea was that you have an individualized workspace that is not a closed door. You know, that is like like that was that was interesting, but too much for managers to to drop money on. They're like, what for my for my clerical workers for my center pool? No, I'm not going to do that. And so Probst went back to the drawing board, and he he basically took the design out. I mean, he he had jettisoned the person he was working with, George Nelson, this great mid-century designer. And then what he came up with was this three-walled space that was um, – it was the, the, this modular system. It was flexible. It was meant to be usually at 120 degrees. It could be – it could it, – it more shaped space than it did than it did anything else. Like you could – they even handed – I saw kits when I visited Herman Miller of like – planning out your action office like it was like a little action office game effectively where you could you had tiny you know inch two or three inch size plastic parts to to plan out your action office do you have like a collection of all the configuration options that were not 
like an enclosed square that you I, were saying? I, 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 if someone will buy them for me, they're yeah. very expensive. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, well, I, yeah. I was, but anyway, listeners, you know, I, I, I would be grateful. We'll do a Kickstarter for <laughs> yeah, right. the Action Office <laughs> Museum. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, that would be. I would. That would blow my mind. Um, I yeah. So it, well, it, well, the big question here is: is yeah. why no one thought oh, if you have a three sided cube. Obviously, someone is going to come up with a fourth side. <laughs> this was never considered at any point during the drawing run and on the while they were coming up with this. Well, they never, yeah, they just never thought it was going to. They didn't think it was going to. It was going to turn into a box. And they, and they, <laughs> and, I mean, the, you know, one exception was the the sort of jilted George Nelson, who yeah. had designed Action Office One, and he was just, he was like, this is just. He thought he knew immediately that it was going in the wrong direction. That it was. It was, I mean, I think he was especially miffed at the sheer lack of pleasure in the design of it and that it reflected a kind of robotic, machine-like attitude towards the office. Um, Probst himself just thought this, you know, it, it, that it, that was, you know, he thought of it as a liberation and his discourse, the language that in his, in his writings about it is very, it's, it has this sort of whiff of the 1960s. Like yeah. it's, it's, he, he talks about individuality becoming a new new ideal in 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 at the time and he talks about how new like old forms old forms of music are being discarded in at an incredible rate and we need to design an office that reflects this new paradigm they so, thought the office could actually catch on just with the same amount of uh, progressive change as what was happening in, in the broader culture exactly yeah yeah, yeah. um and and catch on it did uh, after a certain point. I mean, it took some time, and it was it was. It, I mean, it was the nineteen seventies. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so I mean, anything <laughs> caught on at that time. Yeah, that's right. And so I mean, but it was it was it was well reviewed, and people thought it was a it was a you know it was a game changer in the office. Um, but really, it was not until it was copied by other companies, uh, Steelcase, Hayworth, the other kind of competitors to Herman Miller, that it became. It started to it started to cube basically like it started the the ninety degrees started to set in, and so don't blame Herman Miller blame the competitors who were pushing the cube. Well, as it Herman Miller, if you look at if you look at the late seventies, they they too they, they too, too cube. They're trying to yeah. cash in there. Yeah, yeah, it, it was and protect their investment. Yeah, and 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 you have and Probst himself was like I don't I you have I went to the archives and I saw him. There are these memos from Probst that are mildly alarmed. Where he's oh, just, really? Yeah, so he's just like, I don't. I think some that the. I mean, he, it's sort of coded because he's not. He's not a very. He's a sort of laconic Midwestern yeah. figure. He's not a. But he and he can't exactly uh, represent crushed idealism in a corporate environment. Yeah, it's yeah, just not. It's, not, it's not, not, good. not quite yeah. going to work. But yeah, so he's like the the dialogue with management is being lost. I think what he mean what he means is basically that. Management is using this as a tool to cue. I mean, you know, I'm reading, but I think that's what he meant. And so, you know, by the 80s, it started to become this the de facto way to organize an office. Um, and even then, I don't think I don't think that was enough to make the cubicle the sort of reviled symbol of yeah. the workplace that it became. It really took a change in the work environment itself and in, in the economy and what work started to represent. Little things like uh, executives taken from their offices and forced to work in cubes. That, that would sort of make people realize, oh, wait, we're all on the actual same page here. Right. We are all equal, as, as the end of Barry Lyndon says. You know? <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's exactly. It's, there's, there, t- there comes to be 
I mean, with the rise of mergers, with the kind of with the right, layoffs as a new practice in, in offices. I mean, it's a more common practice. Mass layoffs, like just people being, like you said, being taken out of their offices, put into cubicles, then the cubicles shrinking. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a, the, the recession of the late 80s has this really cuts into white collar ranks in a way that people had not seen before. White collar workplace was supposed to be protected. It was, yeah. you were an organization man. You were, you know, you might be coddled and it might be stuffy. You might be. You might be you might, might be singing be, IBM songs, but you know. right, exactly. You're, but <laughs> you're being forced you know. to wear matching socks and ties. ties and, yeah, 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 exactly. All that, and just being told to think as they as <laughs> think different think, too. Think, yeah, and then, <laughs> and then to think different. Um, but you're you've got your job for life, more or less, and and that changes, you know. And that's and that's and then the, and then comes you know the Dilbert comes in later, the later office space by the end of that the '90s. So I think that's when. When it's when people start to associate the cubicle with transience, with precariousness, with just real arbitrariness in the in the workplace that it it, it acquires the connotations it has today. You you point out that in the 1970s, as these action office style plans are becoming de rigueur in Europe, Germany, Italy, Sweden, and the Netherlands all pass laws in which they demand that there are employee representatives there on the supervisory boards who are looking into how offices are being designed. This leads me to ask why the United States didn't do that. Why they didn't actually stop this uh, extraordinarily encroachment upon their territory, upon their ability to be independent and so forth. You know, it's, 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 I mean, and we're seeing it now with open office plans replacing the cubes where you have no privacy other than your headphones. I mean, there's... It's it's really the traditions of uh, social democracy, I think, that that distinguish those places from from the U.S. I mean, there's just you know, I mean, there there there's certainly like a higher prevalence of white collar unions even in in you know in 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 Europe. I, and I don't I don't know enough about it to sort of to sort of do a comparative you know analysis. But there, this was the last chapter, <laughs> right? But um, <laughs> you had to turn the book in, right? But we'll get uh, you this. We'll get you on the sequel. But right, right. The comparative analysis of white collar unions. Yeah, yeah. But um, but I've done some research, and so but basically, the, yeah, that's the difference is that you there's there's more of a sense that workers should have a say in yeah. in, and you know it's it's uh, it's like a it's not it's not utopia. It's just but it's it's by any means, but it's just that there's more of a co-management structure. I mean, you see this in even in German industrial workplaces. And so I think that's the difference that in the US there's still that presumption that yeah, I mean the ideology of management is just very high. I mean the US, you know, even for a while just had more managers than most, you know, European or Japanese or whatever workplaces and and there the presumption that they knew better than the work than workers what how their space should be organized was was unchallenged in in any in any organized fashion. Let's jump back in time to Frederick Taylor, a name who we have been dancing around during the course <laughs> of this conversation mentioning Taylorism. He was this anti-union man and he introduced efficiency and standardization 
into the workplace. Uh, this lasted for a few decades until managers became interested, as I as we were talking about before, in how act- workers actually behaved as opposed to how they should behave. W- what was it that uh, caused managers and people to begin to care about workers? I, I mean, I want to kind of go back into this. Can we actually thank Henry Ford for this in any way or the Great Depression? Uh, you know, and uh, why, why did Taylorism kind of, I suppose, flourish for a while, become sort of discredited, and then return later on in uh, in, in the nineteen sixties. Yeah, Taylorism. I mean, it's it it was it, a lot is attributed to Taylorism in, in this sort of literature. I mean, I think because Taylor is such a protean figure, he seems to concentrate all the energies of the epoch. I mean, he, he, in a way, he he um, his because he he attracted all these acolytes. There was the, it had this sort of cultish. Their their just desire for efficiency for productivity that really, which is oddly because that sounds like a very Germanic ideal rather than an American one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there there is a certain certain aspect. I mean, it, and it did it, you know it had it did it certainly did have an influence in yeah. in Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany. But um, it was it was you know the 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 fact that it took off uh, after. I mean, I, I talk about how Taylor was sort of unknown for a while. He was just laboring on these ideas and, and, you know, getting stymied in various workplaces and hated by workers where he tried to institute it. This was just, you know, he was, he went through like a long season of failure until um, there was a Supreme Court, uh, not, excuse me, not a Supreme Court case, but a court case where, where Louis Brandeis was the lawyer. So a lawyer, the, um, the future yes. justice. Um, and he, you know, the railroads were trying to raise rates uh, Brandeis had got, gotten introduced to the ideas of scientific management, and and it was it was there that he realized that he could argue that railroads can't raise rates until they actually introduce certain kinds of efficiency measures. And he cites Taylor, and and the next day Taylor kind of wakes up famous yeah. once the newspapers report this, and soon people are Taylorizing everything, everything in sight, and and, and like they're ta- like. The the Frank and Lillian Gilbreth, who who were his his sort of par, uh, proteges, who wrote the the book Cheaper by the Dozen, yeah. um, or or the subject of it about tailorizing your family. There's yeah. you know there's I talk about of course how they tailorize the the office. Um, the reason that kind of sputters out, it's mainly I think defeated on the shop floor, not entirely, but partly because workers immediately recognize it as a threat to yeah. a certain kind of control. I mean, there's there's a way in which Taylor wanted to strip workers of their knowledge and control over the processes of a, of a factory and install it in a different group of people to separate the execution of work from the knowledge of work is how I think um, Harry Braverman, this great uh, Marxist scholar of the workplace, puts it. And and workers knew they didn't want to be stopwatched. They didn't want to be, you know, unions yeah. were against it from the start. And, and so there were ways to combat it. There was a real, there was a strike, um, a major strike in an, or the Watertown arsenal. There were hearings, you know, they, it was clear that this was not going to be instituted without a fight. Um, and this is, I think, where attempts to moderate it come in, that it just wasn't working, you know, yeah. like workers weren't, weren't happy with it. And this is where I think human personnel management, human resources, even as a concept that that you need a separate department that that kind of thinks about the psychology of workers. That's I think where it, it starts to come in. It, it seems to me that Taylorism is almost the workplace's answer to eugenics in a way, because you have the situation where 
as documented uh, in Stephen Jay Gould's The Mismeasure of Man, <laughs> where when human beings start to measure things, they immediately start to use those measurements for nefarious purposes, as I think Taylor did with the workers. The difference is, is that with Taylor, uh, it's absolutely a, a constant chronicle of minutes for millions of workers. So therefore, they're able to actually catch on really quickly that, uh, wait a minute, this is a bum rap. And yet, and yet, in 1960, Douglas McGregor went out of his way to position himself against Taylor with the human side of enterprise. Uh, what's interesting is that despite McGregor's influence, his New Age maxims, his efforts to um, ascribe Maslow-like needs to the workers, later texts such as Andy Grove's Only the Paranoid Survive, these return to the austere brutality that is championed by Taylor. Um, so why do you think that the business world was doomed to return to Taylorism? Why couldn't a worker-friendly approach or an implied social contract last? I think it really foundered on the on the the crises of the 1970s. I think there was a way in which, and it's it's odd. I mean, it's not that it's not that management theory or you know, which I've read a deplorable amount of at this point. Um, but yet you have not spoken you, in Buzzspeak terms, so I applaud you for that. You know? <laughs> I, 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 I try, I try to you're, bring myself you're, out. We're, you're, you're, you're thinking inside the box, <laughs> so to speak. Um, yeah, it, it it's not that they they there weren't overtures, you know, constantly throughout the. I mean, I think in search of excellence, the the famous Tom Peters Robert Waterman book, the best selling book of 1982. Um, the 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 interest in Japanese management. I mean, yeah. these are all sort of anti, very you know, various versions of anti-Taylorism. Um, I think they it never they were never going to really take hold because there was also this perceived sense that work the workforce in the eighties especially needed to become nimble yeah. and or or you know entrepreneurial. There was a kind of shallow reading of of Joseph Schumpeter that was that encouraged just that that encouraged. A work, like a workplace that could just lay off tons of people just to because we needed to compete right we needed to compete with 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 Japan at the time and um it's not and and it did take hold you know actually it to, to be fair in the 80s they also they do have people reporting on the early efforts of of Silicon Valley yeah to introduce sort of Japanese management style techniques of encouraging identification with the company, like a sort of familial attitude, exercise, things like that. I I, I did find that it just, but it was mainly I felt like these sort of attempts to position for people to position themselves against Taylor. They were a kind of like just sort of pleasant overlay over a, a much more brutal environment it made it seem like the workplace was like work that companies were really were trying they really did care and and that's why they had to let you off like yeah. were, there was a, yeah there was an attitude so it seems to me that as advertising is becoming aware of irony and suddenly it can use irony to fulfill its purposes corporations are doing something similar with taylorism it's sandwiching um, sandwiching it's sandpapering Taylorism to this kind of sheen that you can't recognize because it's all so smooth and warm and caring in its own particular way. Is is that safe to say? Yeah, I mean that's that's certainly that's certainly the the effect. I mean, and it it doesn't it doesn't you know I I don't know how many people bought it. I think I mean certainly there's no no one will ever 
I, few people actually at this point say that they're, they're Taylorists. You know, it just doesn't, I mean, accusations of neo-Taylorism, even in the business world, are are not welcome. You know, like they, yeah. no one wants to be. But um, it's just not how the world operated. And and yeah, and there isn't, there isn't, a, there's a pretty heavy irony there. And it puts Planet of the Apes in a whole new spin. Um, so anyway. Uh, sorry. Let's get into the buildings. I, I really want to get into this. Frank Lloyd Wright's extraordinary Larkin building in Buffalo, New York. It's designed in 1904. It's built in 1906. This groundbreaking administration office with considerable natural light, uh, a ventilation system that was an early form of air conditioning, a generally pleasant place to work based off of the testimonials you were able to dig up in your research. You also, however, note that the light court afforded total control for executives, maximum surveillance for the overseers, as, as we've been in establishing as a sort of nefarious threat to the workplace. To what degree do you think Frank Lloyd Wright was aware of this notion of industrial betterment in his design? Why can't we look to the Larkin building as, well, an early model, possibly, for worker dignity, uh, if there is such a thing? You know, I think we, I think we, we can. I mean, to a, to a degree, there is a way in which it was a very extraordinary building. It was an extraordinary workplace. I mean, there's not... Uh, it's it it had it was i mean if you think about the other things on offer in the office i mean the the office at the time was really modeled on the on the factory i mean it was yeah. that was the it was it was a paperwork factory it was in and and people often clocked in and out of you know these workplaces i think of we talked about the crowd earlier that that is a very you have these sort of zombie like accountants and and they they, they act do they, do they just repeat themselves constantly? They, it's like it's like a sort of modern times of yeah. uh, of the of the office. Um, for Wright, I think it was he, he was he did conceive of the building as a kind of as a symbol of a certain kind of uplift. I think we you know there are the slogans and, and like the words on the wall, the trinity of words everywhere: I, sincerity, generosity altruism like written all over the walls and I, I talk about it in the book um it it was it was i mean the sort of i just wanted the when i talk about control and surveillance i just want to hint at this sort of like this scary the slightly frightening overlay of it which is the company really trying i mean in a way we we should be worried about companies that 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 insist on on the company as a kind of large family. I mean, it really gets, that's really the case with IBM, as we mentioned in the... In sure, but the company man will tell you, well, look, the workers are happy working here. They don't mind being overseen because they are working in a spacious place with light and ventilation, and we're, we're essentially treating them well. We just want to make sure they do their job. What is your argument towards that? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I can't, you can't really argue against people feeling what they, you know, feeling happiness, feeling, you know, I just, I think what, where it starts to go wrong is that, you, is when you, is when you, when you say that it's actually something more than it is. And I, and, and what it certainly was not was a measure of a workplace that, that made, that changed the work itself. I mean, it, it, it made it a more pleasant place to do the work. It made the work flow much smoother. Uh, I talk a little bit about, I mean, we've, we've, you know, there's a bit of, about the really, extraordinary um spiral of paperwork that they yeah. that they in, in, instituted um which resemble which right you know repeated with the the guggenheim um it's just it it is it it does it is the sort of thing that repeated and we have in fact seen sort of versions of this repeated 
throughout the century um, can can stifle uh, can stifle you know individual lives who want who want to seek things outside of their workplace who want a sort of social life that isn't attached to it. Okay, fair enough. Enter glass buildings. Enter Le Corbusier. Uh, you have this scenario where it's an imperialist and tower-centric idea of urbanism. And given the choice between architecture and revolution, as you quote in the book, his answer was revolution can be avoided. Uh, his wild ideological stance on glass building walls, what became known as the international style, this is an enduring part of office architecture. Why was he listened to? Uh, it's... Why Le Corbusier? I mean, it's it's funny how how influential he was, even when he was had so many failures in his life. And uh, I think the 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 predominance of glass in um, mid century America. I mean, there's so many reasons for it, but one I mean, one that I'll just that I think is worth pointing to is just it is a symbol of modernity yeah. in in the West and just the the capacity of the West, you know, and this is a sort of Cold War context as well, um, to build these sort of gleaming, like, examples of just, of progress. Um, there, the the Lever House in particular was just, I mean, the UN building is, is sort of Le Corbusier's, I mean, to the extent, he it, he didn't, the final design, he was stymied in a, a little way, but he, you know, that was one of the great, examples just this this sheer glass skin basically um which is still pretty stunning i mean even as many times as we've seen this sort of replicated uh but the lever house you know i i when people when it debuted in it was designed by skidmore owings and merrill when it debuted in the 50s it just used to slow traffic on park avenue people were it was just this sea green marvel basically and and even a sort of stern critic like lewis mumford thought it was a pretty yeah. extraordinary thing um and it and it had it was it was an expression of a certain kind of confidence i think that you could create these buildings that were light really streamed in certainly that was true in lever house is very thin and so light really made its way into the center of the building um and they could be powerfully air conditioned. This was this was new, like the the their fluorescent lights. So they were they were not uh, energy efficient, yeah. to say the least. But this was just a country that was rich and could spend, yeah. you know, and and could and the curtain wall. I mean, it also there's a way in which it can be rep, it can be read as a kind of symbol of of bureaucracy at its at its finest, if that makes sense. That it was it was. The mid-century corporation had been had been rationalized and was bureaucratic and was just and and this and the curtain wall was a symbol of just transparency yeah. and um, and and also in a way replicability like the fact that you could just reproduce curtain walls curtain walled buildings all over the place was in a way a symbol of of the of corporate America is just prowess. I think yeah. uh, that I think all those things are bound up in the glass skyscraper at mid century. But we have very little time, so I am going to attempt to wind up an, an elaborate conversation through a very complicated question. I, I think we can do this. So your book I'm gonna find a way to squeeze in the Joyce reference. It's kind of a Vico cycle, I think, because we go from counting houses, cramped interiors to slightly more spacious two tier uh, scenarios of stando pools and executive offices, two cubicles, two open office plans. And given the fact that the likelihood of the future 
of offices is going to involve smaller space, well, we could see a kind of unexpected homage to what this, how this whole process began. Simultaneously, you also bring up the AT&T building, now known as the Sony Tower. Uh, last year, it was purchased by the Chatrit Group for $1.1 billion, and they want to turn that into condos. So, <laughs> you know, it's bad enough that we have had to sacrifice our lives during the day, if we work day jobs, into a very particular and not necessarily human-friendly architecture. But if office space is on the wane, to what degree is the workplace's future, our living space's future, and what is the future in general? Is it, is it, is it a throwback, or is there any kind of... I, I guess, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, is there any hope here, Nikki? <laughs> <laughs> um, is there hope? Plenty of hope. What is it Kafka says? Plenty of hope, just not for us. I mean, it, it's... it's um, well, it's uh, it's complicated. There's, um, you know, the one the one thing that the one way in which there it's there's a return. Uh, and I talked to sort of two people who talk about this. One in in very glowing terms, this this uh, Dutch designer Eric Veldhoen, who sees this as as Marxism realized that we all have we're all freelancers. We sell our labor, and we have we're craftsmen, and 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 we we now have uh, uh, power over our work. Um, which is not quite, I think, what Marx had in mind. No, but, I don't think so. But, um, but anyway, you know, I, I, I thought it was, I thought I was impressed by his desire to argue that. Um, and then Richard Greenwald, who, who sort of, who does in fact see this as a kind of return as well to like a 19th century guild, like we might need sort of protections like guilds and things like that. Um, but it's more, it's a much more bleak picture. Um, I mean, the the kind of rise of these workers should should mean that there are fewer offices or the, the space requirements are, are less or you know certainly companies spend are willing to spend less on office space it has to be justified in a way i mean there's also just the fact that you can you don't have to work in one i mean a lot of work can be done from home yeah etc there's i mean all those things come into play um in addition to the to the question of what's happening to to labor um, and and to what's work. happening to living space too? And there's and what's happening to living space? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I, I in a way you you sort of see you you sort of see the office bleeding out of of its traditional space. And this is not by no means. I it's hard for me to say that it's dominant or that this is this is the the thing that's happening everywhere. I mean, have you been to the cafe lately <laughs> right. during the day? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, but it's, yeah, yeah. You know, but that's that's happening. I mean, but we're also in this giant skyscraper right yeah, exactly, now, so exactly. it's still occupied. But um, but yeah, you you find work just bleeding out all over the city, and even you know the odd thing is that even freelancers, the, one of the odd developments of the last five years is the rise of co-working facilities where yeah. people shockingly want to pay to get a desk and work in an office. And usually they don't do it every day. Yeah. And the ones I visited, they're, they're sort of like gym memberships where people don't go very often. Yeah. You know, but, they, yeah. but, they, but people seem to want the space. They want a sort of soci- sociality that you don't get from working from home and things like that. So, but again, those, and those are, and even other companies are trying to emulate co-working spaces they want they want that kind of voluntary you know like you want you should want to come here yeah. aspect too that people have in in co-working spaces so i really do see it um for better or for worse uh that work is just kind of extending all over the all into yeah like you, you said into our living spaces into cafes certain other i think universities have talked about opening up spaces to to for for people to work at 
Um, and on the one, on the other hand, you do have the attempt to, to make the office enchanted and, and viable. And this is sort of what people like the Googles and, yeah. and Chaya days and, and Yahoo, of course, and, you know, the, and Facebook, um, and there are many other, there aren't just, I don't think it's just Valley firms, Silicon Valley firms, but they, for them, the office is, is central to like to their, to the company ethos. That's and, all the, that's the only way you live. I mean, you have, we give you the free snacks, we give you the daycare, we give you the gym membership. It's all here. All you have to do is toil here. I mean, the workspace is destroying the living space and there's increasingly no line between those two Vital. I mean, I feel it should be a very clear line so that, you know, because you can't or else you'll go insane or else you'll have another, I guess, workplace massacre or something. <laughs> it's, but you have, you know, in, in, it's true of in sort of both situations, yeah. whether you're whether you're, uh, you know, you're a sort of mobile worker, whether freelancer or, or not. It's it's increasingly hard or whether you're working in, a, in Google, it's increasingly yeah. hard to demarcate leisure and 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 work. And, you know, there's the, the, that, that sort of sense of being overwhelmed is, 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 is probably true in, in, in both setups. I mean, the, 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 the place to look, it seems to me, is to, is to find out. I mean, what, you know, one thing I think that we see with, the, with, the, with freelancing and, and even, you know, is it, I mean, like I said, it's not, it's not always a voluntary Choice and very often is not. Mostly is not. It's not. But I. So I don't want to emphasize it. Underemphasize the exploitative nature of it. Um, but there is an attempt, you know, to by the people who choose it, or even the people who like it, to to make it, to make it, to for at some kind of autonomy. There is a disaffection. Yeah. With with work as it is, um, and that may not have been the case 150 years ago. I mean, I think there was there. You know, there was a. a a presumption that as a clerk you would become a partner and it was actually like a plausible yeah. presumption very few people entertain i i i well i'm i don't have statistics but i just think i think that 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 kind of presumption on the part of a freelancer or even just a worker in a normal company has been has been seriously compromised. In other words, to bring this back to labor, which we started off talking about, the idea of 8 hours of work, 8 hours of rest and 8 hours of sleep is now very much a fantasy. It, it is, and so it's it's it's. I mean, it's uh, it's it's sort of up to, it's sort of it to where where you know what what how that how to how to claim some other kind of fantasy, how to make you know how to make work, or maybe more to autonomous. fight for the old one, maybe, or to fight for the old one. Okay, yeah, that's. I think that's that's sort of the struggle. I I don't. That remains to be seen. Okay, basically. I believe in a good fight, and I think that's a good way to end this conversation. Me too. Nikhil, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That's great. The man who only lives for making money Lives a life that isn't necessarily sunny Likewise, the man who works for fame There's no guarantee that time won't erase his name The fact is the only work that really brings enjoyment is the kind that is for girls.